Hey guys, and welcome to today's episode of Give It The Beans. Now, it's my absolute pleasure to introduce to you one of the silverbacks of the industry. It is the one and only Victor Black. How are we doing, buddy? I am very well. Thank you very much for the opportunity to come and uh, speak to yourself and, and, and your audience, buddy. Appreciate it. Oh, man. It's, uh, the pleasure is all mine. But what I'd love for you to do, for, for those, uh, those out there that are listening, maybe perhaps unaware of yourself and what you do, I'd love to you to give a... I don't want to say a brief, I'm going to say a very thorough introduction of, of yourself, who you are, what you do, um, and sort of your experience in the industry to date. That'd be fantastic. Yeah, cool. Uh, I guess, firstly, I would say I have an expectation that very few people may have heard of me. I, I think it's fair to say that over the last five or six years, my profile has been slowly but relentlessly you know, climbing. Um, I, I made a, a decision uh kind of uh, maybe maybe six years ago to start to be more vocal, be, be more, you know, outspoken publicly about, uh, about what I've learned on my journey over the last 37 years on training, both as a natural uh, trainer and competitor and in, in more recent decades as an enhanced trainer. So the profile has, has, has grown considerably over the last couple of years. Um, really who I am, I'm uh, in my mid fifties now, been, you know, training really since I was a teenager, if you call, you know, like I started in the backyard with literally, a, you know, a set of dumbbells and a barbell and a bench. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in that era where, you know, the, the, the people on the screen were Arnold and, and Van Damme and, and Stallone. And, you know, and I, I remember seeing uh, Mr. TBA Barakas and thinking, man, that's fucking badass. <laughs> so I, I'm from that era where, you know, actors, at one point in time, actors were, you know, walking around with decent physiques on them, sort of, you know, so, you know, it, it, caught, it caught me at an early age and I've had the bug ever since. So um, still an amateur competitor uh, in 2019, competed in the uh, over 50 Mr. Universe class, um, intended to do that this year, obviously, with the with the global pandemic sort of thing. The, the, the competitive landscape has changed significantly. I will certainly be climbing back on the stage in that class. Uh, either next year, whenever the travel restrictions lift and, and international competition becomes viable again. And uh, my, my great passion is really trying to, you know, share what I have learned over the last you know, three and a half decades more with, uh, you know, young guys, both, both what I would call practitioners, people who are recreational trainers and, you know, young and um, you know, either new or novice coaches, people are kind of like, you know, coming up through the ranks, you know, getting the, you know, getting their skills together as we were sort of thing. So that's my great passion. And my, um, if I had a, a specialization era of kind of like core competencies that I try to speak to mostly, it's about the safer application of enhancement practices. Um, so we'll be talking about enhancement practices, I guess, in, in, in detail today. It's important for people to understand that Nothing I say is really a debate about, you know, quote unquote works, you know, this works or this doesn't work. I think it's fair to say that, you know, we figured out a long time ago that what works and what doesn't work in our community. I think, however, we still have some way to go towards what I would call, you know, safer practices. And uh, what, what my core message usually is, is look, if there's a way to do things, typically there's more than one way to do things. And if, if you have three options and one of those options is plausibly safer, maybe we should lean into that. Maybe, maybe we should pay our attention. I think, it's, I think it's disingenuous and even dishonest to say that anything we do is quote-unquote safe. Yeah. I, I, I'm more about saying, look, if there's three ways to do things, typically what you'll find is that one of those ways potentially carries greater risk than the other two. Yeah. And of the two other options, there's probably, pro- probably one of them that 
would, you know, if if you poke on it and prod on it long enough, you kind of go, yeah, well, that, that's probably the best option for me to follow. And that's really my message, trying to get people to understand that there usually is a safer way to do things and we should be leaning into that. Yeah. And I definitely can say from my end of the, the stick that the movement that we're seeing, the transition, you know, from years ago, where it was just a case of, hey, bro, take five milligrams of this, take seven milligrams of that, like, I don't see, we're not seeing that in the industry, especially here in the UK. It's more along the lines of, well, you know, the, the, the most from the least sort of dosages and whatnot. But rather than me going to what I'd love for you to do, for, for someone that's kind of went, what's the safe bottle approach? You know, I've got this guy called Big David in the gym to sell me trend and tell me to take five mil a week. You know, for those guys that are getting that advice, you know, could you cover that safer model approach? You kind of touched on it there, but if you can go into a little bit more detail, that would be fab. Yeah, I, I think there's probably, I mean, historically, most of the content that I've put out, what most people would know me about is what, what I would call uh, safer use practices in, in the acute time frame. In other words, cycle design, you know, from a point of view of, okay, so we're standing here in, in, in May 2021, we're looking at, you know, the next six months and what we're going to be doing over the next six months and compound selections and dosages and mitigation strategies that we might put in place to basically, you know, help us to offset some of the toxic toxic effects of these compounds. That's, you know, I, I think I've I've spoken about that at length on a number of podcasts. I'm more than happy to explain that, but I'm now kind of transitioning into a, a second phase of that discussion, which is really about lifetime exposure. Yeah. yeah. So there is a difference between what you can get away with for a year or two versus what you can get away with for 25 years doing. And, and I think that, it is fair to say that the community has been very responsive in understanding the safer use message. There are certainly a number of people out there talking about it now, which is fabulous. Most people are still, however, talking about acute application. They're still talking about, you know, so what does my next cycle look like? And, and I would like to, you know, shift the communication or shift the conversation as we're now into, okay, let's, let's talk about the next 25 years during and what the strategy is going to be. And, and quite bluntly, that's that's going to be a new conversation for a lot of people because they haven't even really considered it. Now, why is that relevant? Well, it's fair to say back in the day, back in the you know the golden era of bodybuilding, I mean, guys like Mike Mensah retired from bodybuilding at 29 years old. I mean, Arnold stepped away from the you know Olympia the first time. He obviously had a comeback, but he, he retired at 28. You know, today we live in an era where you know, one of the fastest growing classes of competitors is master's class. I mean, there are guys out there that, you know, I mean, I'm, I don't say this to be arrogant. I just say it's a statement of fact. If, if in 1975 I was competing, I would have come fourth in the, in the, universe, in the, in the Olympia. And, and the reason behind that was there was three competitors in the over 200-pound class. But today, you know, we have, you know, lots and lots and lots of guys competing into their 40s, into their 50s, the class that I compete in. And so the landscape has changed considerably. If you retire at 25, 26, 27, you're in, that's really a different risk profile than someone that's going to keep going for another 30 years after that. So, so this is a new conversation. Most people are not familiar with my stance on that. And maybe we can spend some time talking about both of those, both of those areas, acute cycle design, and then obviously longer-term strategic planning. Yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it because usually kind of over here in the UK with, with you know, with even myself with clients and that, you check the blood work and I guess you're looking at kind of what what's going on currently in the now. Mm. But what, what we're maybe not seeing is kind of what's going on over time. And if I use myself as an example, like in 2017, my hematocrit was absolutely fine. And every time I got my bloods back, it was okay. 
Now, every time I get my bloods back, it's always high. Mm-hmm. It, it, you know, now actually I'm a bit bigger, and it's not necessarily an overly bad thing because I can let blood every three months. But that's something genetically that I was like, oh, okay, well, there's certain sort of compounds that I can't use because mm-hmm. well, I've been running for a while, and if I was to use them, that would be not make sense. So, is that kind of what you're meaning? But obviously, it kind of goes a lot further than that. And for someone out there who's thinking, well, risk of 25 years, you know. Talk us through if, if you want to the acute, but also the prolonged risk. Let's let's start with females because that's the easiest thing for people to understand, sure. and then we'll talk about men. So, with female use, most historical conversation has been about uh, the drugs and the dosages used in a single cycle design. So, in other words, so you have a female competitor that's going to expose herself to one of the derivatives of the testosterone molecule, one of the anabolic and antigenic steroids. Typically, the dose, the conversation then revolves around so so which derivative. And how much and for how long? Yeah. And I think that's relatively simple for most people to understand. We have a consequence of that behavior that plausibly could result in you know, what we call deleterious or unwanted side effects in women, right? But what's not well understood and what you know I, I've been talking about a little bit for women is it's not just about the peak dosage that you expose you to, but the cumulative lifetime exposure of androgens. Do you mean so? I mean, you could very easily. And this is this this is I mean scientific. It's it's simply an observation. Go along to any regional, any national competitive show, and look at the the the, the ladies that are competing in the bikini classes, and and go, you know, what's this all about? They all look fabulous. You know, they look they look lovely. During, but the, the the cold hard ugly reality of the fact is is that then you start to go and pay more attention to the masters classes, the girls that have been doing it a little bit, and you start to see the consequence of cumulative exposure versus peak exposure on that day you know within the within the 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 competition or the or the growth phase cycle so it's probably very simple for people to get their heads around that go yeah yeah you're right there's two conversations we need to talk about this cycle and we need to talk about the next 10 years of exposure and understand that the the consequence basically is is something you must take both of these into account you're in for for a female athlete now What's not well understood is, well, you kind of have to take the same thing to account for men because there is a very, very big difference between what we can get away with for a year or two and, and what you can get away with for you know, someone that's, I mean, I'm literally, you know, my intention is to be enhanced for life. I mean, I'm going to be 80 years old and, and, and using these, these compounds. So I need to consider not only what I'm doing today, but what consequence those behaviors are going to have 10, 15, 20, 25 years from now for me doing so maybe i can just start with like a really high level overview framework of what i would recommend people consider and then we can you know any questions you've got any threads you want to pull on i'm I'm more than happy to talk about anything there's nothing that's taboo this you know i don't need to prepare myself for these things so so if we just look at and say okay so i think it's a very fair thing to say some people might say it's harsh but i would say that most guys most guys if they're honest would say look i've had five to 10 years of exposure here, but I probably feel like I've had two or three really productive years of, of, of results that I'm walking around with. I mean, they go, okay, here's five years to 10 years of steroid use, but I probably could have realized that outcome in two to three years. And therefore I've got, you know, a, a number of years, five, six, seven years of, you know, I'm not saying wasted outcome. I'm saying stress without much to show for it. I was <laughs> yeah. This is everybody, This, but this is everybody. Like if guys are honest, they go, fuck, that's me, right? You know what I mean? 
like I've, I've gotten some good returns, but I certainly can't, you know, reconcile the amount of drugs I've taken and the years of exposure I've had against the results I've seen. That's most people, right? So the obvious answer is here, okay, so what can we do about that? And, and I would argue that first thing to do about that is just to be a little bit more strategic with when we bring drugs in and how we would use drugs and what at what point in time would you back away and say, look, I'm going to lower my exposure here. I will give you a simple example. I mean by that, it is very, very profoundly different what inputs, what training inputs, what nutrition inputs, what pharmacological inputs you require to grow new tissue versus what it takes to maintain your current position. Yeah. Okay. Anyone, even naturals, should understand this. If you spend enough time in the gym, you'll know that the amount of work you need to do in the gym to kind of hang out where you are, not really get any better, not really get any worse, the amount of volume load, the amount of effort that you need to make in the kitchen, I mean, it's, it's just dramatically different. I mean, to the point whereby someone at you know, your training age, you know, the, the realistic thing is of hanging out where you are is I'm not saying there's no effort, but it's a relatively easy thing to do, yeah? And yet the acquisition of another 20 pounds of tissue was quite a task, doing. And yet most people don't seem to appreciate that get, you, you get to a point whereby, you know what, you can back off a lot of things and you're just not going to go backwards. And so there's just logically this point where you get to, you say, okay, so we should be able to do this. Get as far as we can training as a natural, Okay. Whatever that means, it doesn't matter. You know, you can take from that what you want. Get as far as you can as a natural. I would say the, the principal outcome there is you really want to understand training practices, nutritional practices, stress management practice, sleep hygiene practices. Okay. Yep. And I would say over-the-counter supplement practices. When you have all of those skill sets, then the, the idea of walking in pharmacological you know, growth promotion agents, is, it's, it's a plausible, it's, it's just a rational thing that some percentage of guys are going to want to do right? But walking them in before you have those other things on the, on the table is really just extending your cumulative exposure experience without getting the maximum return. Yeah. And most guys can relate to this. If they're honest, I would say, yeah, I, I wasted the first couple of years really of exposure during. And so what I would say is you, you want to try and get to that point where you're ready. Yeah. Okay. That takes emotional patience and it takes maturity. Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately, most young guys, including myself, I understand that I'm very empathetic, kind of, you know, struggle with it, you know, I want to push on, I want to push on. But if you get to that point, and then you say, okay, so realistically, from that point forwards, most people's goals can be realized with two or three years worth of exposure to drugs. Yeah, most. Now, I'm, I'm stating the obvious. I'm not talking about an Olympia contender. I'm talking about a, a serious recreational trainer walking around with, you know, non-natural levels of, of muscle tissue and he looks good and he feels good. And, you know, and so you get to that point where you go, okay, so therefore I can, in theory, I can say, right, I'm going to limit my highest risk model to two to three years of exposure. And then I'm going to drop into a lower model that is simply about maintenance of that realized outcome. This is not how people think. This is not how it's done. This is not how it's planned. But if just a logical, rational mind says, man, well, I could, I could like demolish the, the lifetime cumulative exposure I have to drugs by simply doing that two things. And that is don't start until you're ready, right? And then when you get to the point where you're close to your goals, consider just backing away, just going, you know what? I, I, I'll give an simple example. I was talking to a client today and when we started together, I was with him on the journey from first exposure, okay? 
He had a, a long training age as a natural, very hardworking, gifted guy. He's been now using drugs for two years. Okay. He's put 25 pounds of lean tissue on his frame that he did not have when he started during. And he's getting to the point now, realistically, he's very happy with what he sees in the mirror after two years of exposure. And we can now move into a new phase, which says, okay, we can set aside those, those periods of high stress and just fall into maintenance mode. Because again, what it takes to grow tissue is vastly different what it takes to, to maintain tissue that has been acquired and held for some time. So just that it's, it's a small message, but it's not how we talk. It's not how we think it's not how we plan. And yet it has the potential to change everything in terms of health outcomes for our tribe. If you get the right person at the right time. Now, obviously if I'm talking to someone who already has their 10 years of exposure, this message is somewhat moot. Yeah. But if you get to the right guy at the right time, particularly people are thinking about doing it or people are still at what we would call first exposure level, it can change everything. And there's no reason just for anyone listening. Let's say you have put your toe in the water and you have had first or second exposure and you realize in that process, you know what, I don't really know what I'm doing here. Doing. There's no reason you can't stop. You're in, or at the very least, just you know, bring yourself down to what we would call physiological range of androgens if you didn't want to stop completely, and then spend the next year getting your ducks lined up, as it were, in terms of training and nutrition and supplementation understanding, and then pushing on from there. You've eliminated a whole year of potential risk exposure during, and then you're going to then realize that when you do bring those androgens and those other growth promoters back in a super physiological level, the return that you're going to see is exponentially greater than it is one of like. Tr- trying to push forward with a uh, a half a half a foundation. Yeah, hundred percent. I think the the one thing, and I suppose I'll speak from my end experience, is that sometimes I can be like, right, if I get to that point, I'll be quite content with my physique and I look in the mirror. If you showed me a photograph four years ago, you said that's who you look. I'd say, yeah, I'll stop there. But sure. then, but then something in the back of the mind goes, what if you're a little bit bigger? You know, or what if, for example, you're fitting a class and they say you need to bring your arms up, you bring your delts sure. up, and you go, right, cool. Let's push, let's push, let's push. And I think that there's that. There's always that want to be like, right, well, I was content, but as human beings, the goalposts move. And, you know, we all want, you know, classes are getting bigger. The guys are, you know, more dense. And so to be competitive sometimes involves kind of pushing the boundaries. That That's mostly just from my end. But what I found, I suppose, with some clients over here is that the quest to get bigger often kind of overrides at times. It shouldn't, but it overrides sometimes that thought of, what am I going to be in 20 years? But I love what you preach because it's about health. And if I'm honest, mm. like longevity, and if I'm honest, I've not really heard anyone else in the industry speak the way you do. No, which I, think I agree. I agree. And, and it's tough at times because I am literally a voice in the wilderness. During, let me, yeah. let me, let me address that question because it's a very fair thing, but I, I think we just need to be really honest with ourselves at some times. Many people in our industry suffer from body dysmorphia. You know, a great many people, including, you know, I, I unashamedly, I didn't start training because I wanted to be a bodybuilder. I started training because I didn't like the way I looked. <laughs> so I am I'm very empathetic to that, but that does not change the validity of the discussion. It, it means you need to factor in, like you need to have a big boy conversation about things you know, and, and be realistic about things. Let me use a, a simple example. Because I trained as a natural for so long, yeah, I, I see things through different filters and different biases and different you know, lenses that other enhanced trainers and coaches do. 
So what I would say is it's very much akin to the natural bodybuilding thing which says, look, in your first year, if you come out the gates and you do everything right, let's just say you were just, just you know, b- born under a lucky star and you just happen to fall in with the right guys and you have a mentor that can point you in the right direction from day one. The reality is, is that you should have a fabulous first year right out the gate. Now, if you, if you don't know what you're doing, I get that, but we're making the best possible case scenario here. Let's say you're my next door neighbor and I take you under my wing, right? Your first year is going to be phenomenal. Yeah, as a natural. Your second year is going to be productive. Right? But eventually, after year two, three, four, you get to the point whereby you have to make almost as much effort as you did in the first year to maybe put on a pound of tissue. Yeah. Maybe. And so you, the logical, rational mind says, look, this is the law of diminishing returns here where, you know, when you're, when you're picking up 12 pounds in your first year, it's worth every, every minute you spend in the gym, every minute you spend in the kitchen. But you have to ask yourself the question, this is why ultimately I started to become enhanced, because I was getting to the point whereby there was no, I didn't even pick up a pound some years. I look different. I do agree with that. But I was doing so much work. I was spending so much time and so much money and so much effort for literally donuts, yeah. basically. After 20 years, you can imagine that's just how it is, right? Yeah. That I, I, I had to make a choice. I either said, right. I'm going to be happy with the way I look and I'm going to find another, another hobby, right? Yeah. Another thing to put my time into. Or alternatively, I need to open that door and move into enhancement where I have a progression model ahead of myself that I can you know, pre- predictably scale out, yeah? And I would say it's the same thing. It's like in the first two, three, four, five years of, of enhancement, you're in, I, w- I would even say five is too much because uh, I, would, I, would, I would probably say the first two to three years of, of enhancement, you're going to be seeing returns that are worth every penny. Yeah, but you do. You just get to the point whereby it comes the you know a, a case of less and less and less and less return. Let's bang for your buck. Yeah. And typically, what happens, and the interesting thing, it's at that moment that people's risk models typically accelerate. So yeah. they 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 because they get frustrated that they're not moving forward, they start turning the volume up harder and harder and harder, and 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 so they start to see return come, but then at what cost? So what's really interesting is if you if you if you Look at this. This is actually a discussion uh, that far more complicated than it first appears. It becomes down to psychology and needs and goals and aspirations and individual. And what I would argue is there are going to be certain individuals who have the uh, passion and have the genetics and have the drive and all of it takes to be a champion that I'm not trying to get in their way. But let's be honest, that's not most people most of the time. Yeah. Right? And my message is more directed to what I would call serious recreational lifters that said, look, you know what, if I could get 80 to 90% of the return at 50% of the risk, I'll take it. Yeah. You're in. And this is the model. I'm not delusional enough. I'm not, I'm not going to mislead people. It's disingenuous to say that. What I'm saying though, is I'm not saying you can get hundred percent of the outcome at 50% of the risk, but I am saying you can get 80 to 90% of the outcome at 50% of the risk. And for most guys, most of the time, they're not even aware that it's an option. Yeah. So just making people aware of it, it's somewhat similar to this argument. I like business analogies. Not you know, People either connect with analogies or not. It's, it's somewhat like working for yourself and running a successful small business, right? You can work 60, 70 hours a week, more than you would as a salaried employee. You can make $100,000 a year. $200,000 a year, 300, whatever your income is, kudos to you, right? Typically what you find though is 
when you go from 60 to 80 hours a week, right, the burden on your family life, the burden on your social life, the burden on your health exponentially increases, right? But you typically don't pick up 25% increase in income. You're in, it's a little bit more income, but it's exponentially more stress on your life as a consequence. And so finding that what we call balance, you know, saying, you know, by all means, you know, we're going to do more than 40 hours a week here. Yeah. yeah, we want to build a business and we want to be successful at it. But there's a point where you where you cross a threshold where you go, okay, so now it's having a deleterious effect on relationships, on family, on social relationships, on 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 other aspects of your life being multifaceted and potentially even health through stress. And you look at it and you go, yeah, but I only made another ten ten thousand dollars. That like it's it's just not worth it. Yeah. You know? yeah. And and some people are are able to see that as what we would call life balance. Yeah. And say, you know what, you know, like, yeah, I recognize that. Yeah, I, yeah, the, the $10,000 would be worth nice, but I'll leave that on the table because I want my life balance. And 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 you can see the, uh, the what's akin here. It's very much similar to that saying, yes, okay, so there's another 10 pounds on the table over there, but I'll leave that. May push me over the limits of what is sustainable in the long term. Yeah, 100%. One of the other things I thought would be good to add was last year, I, I probably dropped down to the physiological range and did so for probably like four or five months. And mm-hmm. if I'm honest, I, it's not that I felt horrendous. I just didn't feel quite as good sure. uh, as I did Supra. And I just wondered if you'd maybe seen a lot of guys not willing to kind of come down to true TRT because, you know, there may be an age where if they did do that, well, you know, they like the benefits, the muscle gain, and they want the confidence, how they walk about, the, the increase in libido, et cetera. Do, do you see that much, like, at all, that guys just, they maybe just want to stay just out with the physical? Yeah, let, let, me, let me be very clear, though. I'm not talking about coming down to TRT, necessarily. Right. What I'm talking about is, is there is a different... So if we look at TRT, right, and we, let, let me just throw some arbitrary doses on the table. If we look at TRT and say, look, in theory, TRT is supposed to be two milligrams per kilogram of body weight per week. So if you're 80 kilograms, about 160 milligrams of testosterone. Now, clearly, there's a very large and what we call intra-individual genetic response to that amount. Yeah. But let's just, we have to we have to start a discussion about average man. Yep. Yeah. So if we say that's average man. Now, there's already millions, and I mean millions of men taking 200 milligrams a week, and, and, and still we would call that TRT. Yeah. Okay. I'm not proposing that you need to come down to there. I'm simply saying there's a very big difference between a thousand milligrams of testosterone a week and 300. Yeah. Okay. In terms of, you know, the, in terms of the stress that it causes. Now, what I would argue is if you were to say, well, TRT is 150, 160 milligrams a week, it's completely disingenuous to say, well, two X is like a TRT. That's not, that's not natural. What I'm proposing, however, is that it's enough stimulus, right, to maintain the tissue mass that you have acquired, right? It's probably not enough to, 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 to see, you know, significant future growth, but it's certainly enough to hold on to. So I'm not suggesting we need to come down to physiological range. How, where, let me just explain where I reserve physiological range for. If you have pre-existing health conditions, you know, and if you have concerns over some underlying medical issue, then I think that's pragmatic. Yeah. Yep. If you are, if you have incurred stress as a consequence of your behavior, you need to wash that stress off. It's incredibly difficult to wash stress off at at, at super physiological doses. Yeah. 
Okay. So if you look through your blood work and go, okay, kidney stress, liver stress, that, 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 I need to fix that. Like, I'm not suggesting you should do anything, but come down to physiological range and fix it. Okay. Yeah. But what I'm saying is if you're a healthy young guy and your blood pressure is in you know range and your blood glucose is in range and you're getting echocardiograms and calcium you know, scores every year, if you're getting pathology work regularly, and you're in everything is in order and you seem to tolerate it well. There's no reason, in my opinion, that you can't you're in have have a little more on the table than we would call HRT. Yeah. Because, and the reason I say that is this, and this is the premise of I say it's disingenuous to say it's safe. I consider TRT to be safe. Yeah. Based on all of the clinical literature we have, I think it's a fair thing to say that that dose is so well tolerated in most men that we don't see adverse effect. Yeah. Right. But I'm saying is I think you can turn the volume up a little and get away with that for a very long time. Yeah. But there's a threshold you cross where the therapeutic benefits that you realize and the toxicity that's associated meet a tipping point. Yeah. And so what I would argue when you talked about libido, libido is the classic one. The interesting thing about libido, though, is typically, and, and, and this is based on observation of thousands of people I've worked with over the years, more than, more than clinical evidence, is as we raise androgens and we cross the superphysiological barrier, libido improves. Yeah. But there is a tipping point where you get to where it starts to then decline. Right. And for most men, that's about three or 400 you know, milligrams a week of testosterone. Once you get past that point, they tend to go, you know what, well, I felt better. I felt better a little bit back there, Julian. Right. So, yeah, it's, it's, I guess it's, a, it's, a, it's very similar to the concept of like, you, I'm sure you're familiar with the idea of guys will use methylated oral steroids. And at some point, you know, the toxicity of that causes them to have issues with appetite. Yep. You know? And I would say, or, or, or another, uh, another good example is the overuse of the drug. Trembolone is notorious for causing sleep hygiene issues. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So, you know, it's the classic one of like, so this much trembolone, if you're sleeping like a baby, right, in my opinion, is plausibly going to be more productive for you than turning the volume up to the point where you wake up every two hours. Yes. So it might sound like it's more, but I would argue, yeah, but turn the volume down. The quality of the sleep is so impactful on outcome for us that I would argue you're very likely to get just as good an outcome at a lower dose just need to stay back from the edge of where the, the adverse event presents. So we would say, so what would they be? They would be, okay, issues with oxidative stress, issues with libido, issues with, you know, uh, you know various things like you know, sleep hygiene, stress management, issues like anxiety. Most people are familiar with the premise that some of these drugs can cause mental anxiety. Issues with anger management, you know, you're starting to see problems with relationships because you're just – pick pissed off all the time sort of thing we've all been there right so it's 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 just a really interesting thing that i think you have to understand this trt there's unsustainable doses which we've all probably used if we're honest right but back from there there's a point whereby it's just you know what like that's not natural that's disingenuous to take say it's natural but it is for all intents purposes a a far more sustainable long-term model than than, than outright abuses. Yeah, I, I love what you said about trembling just because I had a guy prepping for a show on this year and we turned the dial up and his sleep went to shit and mm-hmm. the minute we turned it back down, his sleep was fine. And yep. I was like, cool, that's, you don't love that ever. And, and, and you know, the interesting thing is even naturals, you know this, I would rather someone get an extra hour sleep than wake up and do fasted cardio at five o'clock in the morning because the consequence of that behavior, it's a, it's a uh, we won't go into the cascade, but you'll probably do better with the hour sleep 
yeah. than you would with the hours cardio. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think that's an incredible um, insight to that sort of safe form approach and kind of went a little bit off the topic, but all relevant. One thing I'd love to quiz you on, um, I had a lot of questions, um, was particularly, I know you're quite big on um, informing, educating sort of females and mm. referring to literature in regards to, to their usage of PEDs or for, for the females out there that may perhaps want to take advantage of it, they don't know where to start, um, you know, they may be perhaps scared of doing it, fear of side effects. There's not, I'd say there's not much information. I think it's becoming more readily available now, but there's not much information. I know you're kind of big on it. So what I was, was wondering, you know, could you kind of give your thoughts on on sort of female PD usage? Where where's the best place to start, or mm-hmm. or whatnot? Um, opposed to some of the the bad advice they maybe just get on Google or whatever. Yeah, the worst advice out there is that m- most people take treat females like little men. <laughs> They're not. Right? So most people would say, look, you know, the the PED cycle design for women is based on a scaled down variant of of what what we do for men, and that's just the worst advice you could ever give. Let me let me just outline. Um, what we would do for women. You have to understand in 2021, there are a great many different compounds that we have available as we, we might consider as ergogenic aids, okay? Compounds that could potentially provide benefits in terms of body composition improvement. It's not 1970 where the only things we have available to us are six steroids, you know, and, and, yeah. and I, I mean, literally, there was a time where cycle design was premised on whatever the local drug dealer had rolling around at the bottom of his gym bag. That's what you got. That's what, that was your cycle. We, we, we're not, we don't live in that time anymore. So if you were to write down a list of all the things you might plausibly do, you're very quickly going to end up with a list of drugs that you could kind of draw a line down the page and say, let's put all the drugs that we would say are, uh, have androgenic consequence on one column and all the other drugs that uh, effectively don't have androgenic consequence. The other, let me just explain what androgenic means for, for I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure most people know, so I apologize if it's overly simplistic, but it literally means if we give that drug to a woman, we would likely induce some male secondary sexual characteristics, unwanted hair growth, change of the sexual anatomy. And the most concerning to me, quite bluntly, is changes to the vocal anatomy. Okay, and, and we'll talk about why, why that's the greater concern. And, and the simple case of this is, okay, so I am not for one second saying that drugs that are non-androgenic in consequence are safe and you can use them with abandon. That's not what I'm saying. I'm simply saying that class of drugs has a very long list of problems that we need to understand and we need to discuss and we understand need to how to, how to uh, leverage and to mitigate risk, right? Yeah. But not drugs that virilize you know, in, is in one column and drugs that virilize is in another. Now, the second part of the discussion you understand is that women are so exquisitely sensitive to growth promotion agents. A lot of drugs that you would give to a man, you go, God, I didn't, I didn't see anything really, you know, anything of consequence are, are impactful enough on women that they make a difference. Okay. Yep. So it's very simple. The strategy is women is this and that make a list of drugs and there's two columns, virilizing drugs, not virilizing drugs, drugs that induce male secondary sexual characteristics and drugs that don't. And then you fundamentally exhaust all of the drugs in the list without virilization consequence before you begin on androgens. You leave androgens to last, which is paradoxically completely the opposite strategy for men, which is with men, the very first drug typically put on the table would be either testosterone or an anabolic steroid, right? With women, that's the very last drug that you put on the table. So something like Anivar, starting with Anivar, 
is I'm not joking when I say it's very much akin to someone saying, I'm about to plan my first cycle. What do you think of me using tremble? And I'm going, are you fucking kidding? Like what for? Like, it's yeah. like, what, why do you think you need to come out the gate with tremble alone? Yeah. Right. So, but unfortunately women have been, for one of the better word, hoodwinked, right, yeah. into believing that they're little men by by typically male coaches, right, or or female coaches that don't know any better as well, right. And the reality is, is that if you focus on drugs that don't have virilization effects, I'm not saying there aren't a long list of problems, but because the dosages that women use are so small, many of the problems that we associate with male use are just a non-issue. I will give you a simple example. So the use of recombinant human growth hormone, there's a number of issues with it. One is it's very expensive, okay? And two is it absolutely has the potential to elevate insulin resistance. These are the two, you know, know, crosses against the drug, okay? But the reality is is that the uh, induction of insulin resistance consequential to the use of recombinant human growth hormone is dose-dependent. Yeah. Okay? So at doses which make an impact on women, one unit a day makes an impact on women. You could effectively give a woman one unit of recombinant human growth hormone for the rest of her life, and she's, there's no risk of virilization there at all. Yeah. And at that dose, it's extremely unlikely in a healthy young woman that she's also going to have any you know, insulin resistance consequence. And the irony is, at that amount, it's, quite, it's, not, it's, it's not the shocker it is for price with men as well. The sticker shock is not as bad. Okay, so it's a classic case of, you know, you would never lead a man with growth hormone like anyone that, you know, anyone that came to you and you said, okay, first drug off the rank, we're going to start with growth hormone. People would go, you're you're crazy as a man. Like, why would you do that? Right. But that's a very valid strategy for female use. And the principal reason is because it simply doesn't represent risk of virilization, that drug. Yeah. Okay. And a drug like clenbuterol. Clenbuterol is both a hypertrophic agent, in other words, an agent that is capable of producing muscle growth, yeah, growth promoter. It's also a very potent, you know, fat loss agent. But in reality, in men, right, our anabolic, you know, uh, resistance, as it were, to all that drug is so high that if you were to give a man a small amount of clenbuterol, say 40 micrograms a day of clenbuterol, right, the likelihood of him seeing significant changes in body composition is very small. Yeah. But it's enough to see significant consequence in women. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't there is not a discussion to follow about safer use of clenbuterol. It simply means that clenbuterol, through its mechanism of action, is not an androgen. It doesn't work via the androgen receptors. It doesn't really disrupt the endocrine hormone on that pathway, and so the risk of virilization is zero. Yeah. Okay. It doesn't mean there's no risk. The risk of virilization, and so you can understand that the way that we create cycle design for women is we. Basically, we, we go through all of the non-virilizing drugs first. We leverage as many of those as we might wish to meet our need and our risk profile. And if we completely consume what's available to us, the final drug that we might consider putting on the table would then be an androgen, an anabolic or androgenic steroid. Yeah. One of the, one of the females had asked about SARMs. And mm-hmm. rather than the answer, I thought it would be, be great for yourself just to, to delve into it because I feel that there may be Poorly misunderstood um, within the industry, and people often think that they're just well, they're just steroids anyway. So, if you'd be able to kind of give a little bit of advice on that, and then you're, are they applicable for females? Because um, it was a female asking the question. Yeah. So I would say let's deal with men first, because I like I like I like putting this out there. So if you're a man, you have no business fucking around with Psalms, <laughs> and and let me explain why. Psalms are a class of drug being developed for women. 
Yeah. Right. And what we would call the androgen sensitive. Now, the reason they're developing them is it is fair to say that really, you know, since the 1950s, they've been attempting to take the testosterone molecule and modify it so it, we can remove to the largest extent possible, the androgenic consequence of therapeutic application. So we get the benefits of testosterone and we leave behind the androgenic impact. Yeah. This has been the, the story behind the development over 60 years of anabolic steroids. Okay. Anabolic steroids correctly classified are actually steroidal SARMs, steroidal selective androgen receptor modulase. Now, it's fair to say that no anabolic steroid ever developed was completely devoid of androgenic impact. Because if it was, we wouldn't need the, the billions of dollars that are being invested in SARMs. The, the reason that SARMs are being invested in is they're trying to remove, for want of a better word, the very last vestiges of androgenic impact so these drugs can be used more efficiently in females. Yeah. Okay. So the amount of androgenic impact that is left behind in primabolin, in Masteron, in Anavar, these types of drugs, right, is of no concern to men. Yeah. Okay. No concern to men. Yeah. They are more anabolically capable and they, they do have androgenic impact, but not of a magnitude that men need to worry about. Sure. Okay. So why they're developing SARMs is to try and remove that andro the, the last vestige of androgenic impact so we can deploy them more safely with a better, you know, a, a better virilization profile in the androgen sensitive. So I fully support the development path. I understand the need. I'm very interested in the literature, but you just have to understand for a start, they're being developed for women, not for men. Yeah. Okay. Now, what that means is if you're a woman, you should be very interested in this because in a few years' time, the choices that we'll have on the table will basically be very, very few women will still be using anabolic steroids in 10 years. All right. My concern is I do not believe that the current generation of SARMs, though, meet our needs. Okay. Okay. There is one standout, and that is the drug Osterine. Okay. Osterine is so close to human approval that for all intents and purposes, we can consider it to be a, a drug that has been well studied in humans. We understand the consequence of use in humans. And I would argue that using that drug at doses is somewhat similar to the clinical trials that were seen in human beings appears to be well tolerated. And it certainly has a better androgenic profile than even the most benign of the anabolic steroids like primabolin. Better. Yeah. Better for women. Okay. The challenge, if there's one challenge with the androgenic potential here is that this class of drugs actually have the potential to basically impact on what we call sex hormone binding globulin. Okay, so the consequence of taking this oral compound lowers sex hormone binding globulin. The kick-on effect from that is sometimes you can see an elevation in what we call free testosterone or bioavailable testosterone, and the consequence of the elevation of that can have potential secondary androgenic consequence. Right. Okay. okay. Now that's not something that you, unlike with with Anavar or Primabolin or Masteron, the consequence is direct action. Okay. The consequence with that drug, Osterine, is potentially secondary. So in other words, the drug introduced lower sex hormone binding globulin, consequentially we see an elevation of free testosterone. Consequentially, in some women, we could plausibly see a mechanical pathway where we might see virilization. However, what I would argue is that the dosages that we've seen tested, that does not yet present in the clinical literature. Yeah. But you have to remember that people are using more than we've seen trialed. Yeah. And like everything where there's a dose response, as we take more, potentially we suppress sex one and binding globulin to a greater magnitude. And so forth. consequently, we see a higher elevation of free testosterone. So there is a plausible pathway of realization, but it is fair to say 
it is much reduced compared to Anavar. My principal concern about SARMs is understanding two things. One is, it, unlike testosterone and the derivatives that we refer to as anabolic steroids, SARMs are actually a number of different classes of chemical skeletal structures, so they're not one thing. Yeah. Okay, So all, all testosterone derivatives, nantinors, DHTs, are all derived ultimately from testosterone. They all feed back to the testosterone skeletal structure. Yeah. SARMs, that is not true. There's like four or five different classes of skeletal structure involved. And so you cannot draw a circle around something and say SARMs. Yeah. You actually have to ask, okay, so which, which class of compound, which class of skeletal structure are we talking about first? And then plausibly, we would expect to see that drug because it is literally a different compound with a different skeletal structure to behave somewhat differently under trial conditions. Yeah. So the first misnomer is SARMs are SARMs. No, just like anabolic steroids, they, they, they differ, okay? But because they have different skeletal structures, it's plausible that the difference is more profound than we, than we appreciate. So there are some SARMs that have been through enough clinical trials and enough surrogate trials and enough, you know, what we call mechanistic studies for us to be relatively confident in what, what we're going to see, relatively, okay? But there are also some SARMs that are in common use that have been so poorly researched that to me, you are just ludicrous. I will give you an example. There is a compound referred to as YK11, it is in reality a, a hybrid anabolic steroid, but it's sold as a SARMs, right? That there is a total of four research papers done on it um, that are all mechanistic studies. That drug has never even been tested in a rat model. Okay. Right? And people pop it like lollies because, you know, the SARMs are safe, right? So in other words, the, the disparity between a drug like Osterin, which is so close to human approval, we can, for all intents and purposes, say it's just a matter of time. Yeah. All the way to the other end of the spectrum going, holy crap, you're telling me we don't even have a rat study? We don't even have a rat study. Yeah. yeah. Okay. These are, this is like, this is two sides of the coin. Like this is night and day in terms of what I would look at in terms of risk profile. So yeah. what, what I would say is this, takeaway for this. If you're a woman, you should be very interested in what's happening in this space. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just be warned that 90% of the educational information that's presented to the public on this space is literally reading the brochure of the guy who sells this stuff. Yeah. Okay. That's like, you know, saying, okay, uh, you know, going to a used car salesman and saying, is this a good car? He says, yeah, it's fucking great. Oh, this is a good car. Let's buy it. You know, like, it's like, you know, you can't get much naiver than that. You know what I mean? So, People don't understand that most Psalms websites you see are literally, that's the literature from the guy selling the product, you know, and he's not going to show you what, where is his vested interest in showing you the potential downside to this product, you know, yeah. and you only have to go to the Psalms websites with one little piece of information in your top pocket. Anabolic steroids and androgens do not affect the prostate in healthy men. It is fair to say that if you have a man with a pre-existing condition like type 2 diabetes, yeah. right, that elevated androgens potentially can have deleterious or negative consequence on the prostate. But in a healthy man, they do not, right? You stick that in your top pocket and go and read a few Psalms website and you just go like, it's lies from the beginning. Lies, 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 lies. It's all about these people that wanting to sell these products and not wanting to be truthful with them. If you're a man, completely just let's stop talking about that. If you're a woman, dive right in. But understand that they're that not all psalms are the same. And the final layer that I would put on that, I, I would say, 
in the next five to 10 years, we will start to see new compounds being brought to market that plausibly actually deliver on the promise of SARMs. But I don't feel that the drugs that are currently being evaluated fulfill that criteria. Why? Think about how long they've been around. They've been around for 20 years now, right? And not one single SARMs has made it into human clinical use. Why? Because they keep failing the trials. Yeah. It's, it's not because the trial process takes that long. It's like we tried, we failed, we tried, we failed, we tried, we failed, right? Yeah. And if you understand why they failed, it's very interesting because what we need is we need more tissue selectivity and greater potency. Yeah. And, and when they're able to come up with a compound that delivers on that promise, so even greater tissue selectivity and more potency, then women will flock to that you know, as a default position. Today, they're somewhat stuck in the middle. They're going, I'm not sure what to do. And what I would argue is, I think Osterine is valid and everything else I would, you know, I, I would look through, you know, the filter of a skeptical lens. But I would still say plausibly, you should start with the non-virilizing drugs completely. Things like clenbuterol, there is no risk. Yep. Even with Osterine, there is some risk of virilization, as I said, through a secondary consequential pathway. I'm sorry, I spoke a long time on that. Sorry, no, I, dude, that's I all right. I think it, I think it's great. Um, I love that you mentioned Austrian. A few a few years ago, I saw had an experience with one bikini girl who took it, and she added so much tissue in not a lot of time. Uh, it was crazy. So yeah, dude, I think it's it's epic information. It's valuable. Now, one thing I love to do with all guests, um, just as a wrap up podcast, uh, this doesn't need to be related to bodybuilding whatsoever. Um, it's just to, to ask them sort of the biggest lesson they've, they've learned in life and kind of what advice they would give from that. So. If you have a story for us, if you have a, a chestnut piece of advice, um, please do feel free to share. Mm, it's a very interesting question. I would, I would honestly say this, and that is, even though I've been studying this domain now for, and when I say this domain, I'm, I'm really talking about training. Yeah, everything, everything that means. Even though that I've been studying this for 35 plus years now, and I've been waist deep trying to understand enhancement practices for the best part of 15 years. Yeah. I feel today I have a longer list of questions than I started with. <laughs> In other words, the more you learn, the more you realize there is to learn. Yeah. yeah? And, and I think this is, you know, one of the greatest challenges that we face. And that is that it's very easy to learn enough that you can delude yourself, that you think, you know, what you're talking about. I'm 15 years in now. And the problem I have quite bluntly is I have a very long list of questions and a very small list of people who can answer those questions. Yeah. When I started, I had a shorter list of questions. There was more people that can answer those questions because they were relatively simple questions to answer. Okay. What drug when? How much? And there was plenty of people. But as I draw further and further and further down the rabbit hole, I find there's less, there's fewer and fewer and fewer individuals that are capable of giving me credible, you know, information. Yeah. yeah. And 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 more and more often I realize that those people are not within our tribe. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're specialists in organic chemistry. They're specialists in androgen research. They're not guys down the gym and they're not coaches. <laughs> yep. and, and that would be the greatest you know, lesson that I feel like I walked away from this is that this is a very exciting field for me because I realize the more I learn, the more I have to learn. Yeah. And, and, and the cautionary tale would, here, would be here is that there's an awful lot of people that you're in. I, I mean, I, I'd see them all the time, guys that are 25 years old and they're advising and mentoring other people about drug use. And I'm going, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, you, you really shouldn't probably have started until you were 23 or 24. Do you know what I mean? So how much, how much experience do you have? So you've been doing it for a year. 
right? And now you're advising other people. And then you hear other people say, no, 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 I started 10 years ago. I'm saying, you started at 15 years old. You're in like that, like, you see what I'm saying? Like, it's very, it's very challenging when I hear other people that are 25 years old, mentoring and educating people. I'm just going like, you know, like I've been doing this for 15 years and I, and I'm, I still have questions. Yeah. I still have questions. So I, I guess my core tie would be this. And that is just understand that um, when I read educational websites, when I visit forums, when I visit groups, I, I know it sounds like a tough thing to say, but I would say more than half, more than half of what I read is not correct. Right. That's, that's kind of staggering, right? Yeah, that's yeah. Kind, of, kind of staggering. Yes. But, but when you think about it, like, a, let me, let me, let me make an analogy to, to something that most people can relate to. I like to use analogies. If you go into the, you know, how to make money online niche, you're in, you just start reading this stuff and you go, that's just crap. That's just like, that's just not true. During like, that's crap, that's crap, that's crap. I mean, you 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 have to read a hundred articles to pick up 10 that would be credible. Yeah. You're in. And it's very much akin to our tribe. You read a hundred articles and 10 of them are worth your time and the rest of them are not. So it's not like we're the only industry, you know, the, the how to make money, how to, how to, how to meet chicks, you know, industry is the same thing. You're like for the guys, you're like, you, you, you there's a lot of guys out there, you know, you know, selling the fucking secrets to meeting women sort of thing. And, and, and yet when you start to look at this information, you go, it's just not credible. Yeah. Doreen, they're there to make money. They're there to sell you something Doreen. And uh, I don't want it to sound like sour grapes or anything like that, but just, I, I just encourage people to understand that when people like myself and there are other people like me, certainly I'm not unique in the world. When we look at the information that you're reading, right. We look at that through the filters of saying, yeah, but half of that's not right. Yeah. Doreen, half of that. And, that, and that's, that's, that's something that I'm trying to address with, with, with creating content like this. Yeah. Dude, very, very insightful. And I think you're an incredibly humble guy. You share a lot of your knowledge willingly. So massive thank you for kind of coming on the podcast. And what I'd love for you to do is just anyone out there who kind of wants to, to get in touch with you or, or get a bit more information from you to kind of follow you in that and just provide your details for them so they can do that. Sure. So uh, right above my head is my Instagram at Victor Black Masterclass. That's probably the, the easiest people to ways to find me. I also run uh, two websites, VictorBlackMasterclass.com, which is a, a member-based uh, educational portal, ed, you know, evidence-based educational portal for what I call serious recreational trainers with an absolute focus on enhanced training practices. And I'm about to launch uh, in a week's time, something called prepcoachacademy.com. And, and the intent of Prep Coach Academy is really to provide you know, guidance, education, mentoring, support for coaches so that, 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 that I can uh, help them with their you know, in, uh, education and, and, and knowledge acquisition in this domain so that they're making sure that they're giving the right information to their, their clients in turn. So either one of those places, Victor Black Masterclass or prepcoachacademy.com. Super, man. And I would encourage anyone listening to, to please go ahead and do that, especially follow his Instagram. The content he puts out, you don't see anyone else in the industry doing it. And uh, you speak a lot of sense. And so thank you for coming on, dude. I think I speak for not only everyone here, uh, you know, uh, listening, but also everyone from Scotland and the UK. We appreciate what you do. Um, and I'm sure that I speak for myself and you when I say, whatever you are, whatever you do, give it the beans. <laughs>